This is the Humboldt Chronicles. I am the queen of everything. I gotta be high before I can sway. Lighter tea and let it be. If you a viper. I'm Chuck Rogers with producer Larry Trask. The Humboldt Chronicles is made possible by Bear Extraction House and Charleston Tree Service. Much appreciation for your support of the Humboldt Chronicles. At a time in this country when red and blue can't agree on anything, might not even like each other very much anymore, and seem to be moving in opposite directions, comes this reminder. Blue California and red Oklahoma have a connection. Something more recent than the Dust Bowl migration, both belong to the family of states jumping into the cannabis industry. Right, but think of California and Oklahoma as cousins, not twins. They're approaching cannabis legalization in different ways. Here in California, cannabis is heavily regulated from seed to consumer. Oklahoma, by contrast, is taking a more hands-off approach with very little regulatory oversight. Voters in the Sooner State approved medical marijuana in 2018 and made it easy to get into the business and easy for patients and consumers to access the medicine. And as a result, business is booming. Recently, Larry and I spoke with Paul Demko. He's the cannabis editor at Politico, who spent time in Oklahoma documenting what's going on there. Of all places, right? Oklahoma, deepest of the deep red. It's conservative territory culture war territory. We asked Paul what first got his attention. The sheer numbers were overwhelming in terms of the, the number of people enrolled in the medical marijuana program um, as a percentage of the population. It's, it, there's no other state that comes close to it. Um, almost one out of 10 Oklahomans are enrolled in the medical program. And then in terms of businesses, there's almost 10,000 marijuana businesses that have been established or at least have been licensed in Oklahoma um, since the program started in 2018. And that includes more than 6,500 grow operations and roughly 2,000 dispensaries. And particularly when you think about how conservative Oklahoma is and how traditionally it has embraced extremely uh, tough penalties for, for drug offenses, including marijuana possession and distribution. It just seemed really shocking that this is happening, and, and I wanted to know why. The why is indeed interesting here. This came about because the voters of Oklahoma, not the politicians, demanded it. Oklahoma proved, as other states have, that the political class lags woefully behind the citizenry on the question of cannabis. It's a matter of citizen activism. Quite frankly, I mean, way back in 2013, there was a woman named Norma Sapp, who was a longtime hemp and marijuana legalization advocate, and she was leading the Oklahoma Normal chapter at the time, and she somehow cobbled together enough money to, to do a poll, uh, trying to figure out, you know, what Oklahomans thought about um, marijuana policy. And the results of that were, were pretty staggering. She found, it found that 57% supported ending criminal penalties for possessing small amounts of marijuana and 71% backed legalizing mer medical marijuana. And that was really 
in stark contrast to the policies that that state lawmakers had enacted and embraced in that state. So she and kind of an unlikely crew of allies started working to get medical marijuana on, on the ballot. Um, and they, in 2014, they, they failed to get enough signatures to get on the ballot. Then in 2016, they got the signatures, but then um, Scott Pruitt, who was at the time the Oklahoma Attorney General and would go on to briefly um, serve as the head of the EPA under the Trump administration, rewrote the ballot question in a way that they thought suggested that this would fully legalize marijuana, not just medical. And they ended up suing over that um, and ultimately prevailed at the Oklahoma Supreme Court. But that delayed the ballot measure another two years. So it wasn't until 2018 that they finally got on the ballot. And it passed, not surprisingly, given what the polling data showed five years earlier, with with 57% support from the public. As we mentioned, The Oklahoma experiment is mostly hands-off. There is a state agency overseeing the medical cannabis business, but there's minimal regulation. The idea is to give just about anyone who wants to take a chance on a medical marijuana business the opportunity to do just that and to run the business as they see fit. Of course, there are pros and cons to this approach. The biggest factor you got to point out is that there's no limits on business licensing. And the cost to obtain a license is a very low $2,500. So basically anybody who can scratch together $2,500 and dreams of operating some kind of marijuana business can get a license. So that is very different from what you see in most regulatory uh, schemes around the country. but secondarily, um, they don't allow local control in Oklahoma. So you see states like California and Colorado and Michigan that are seemingly, you know, much more, uh, you, you would think, much more supportive of, of the marijuana industry, but you still have the overwhelming majority of municipalities that don't allow marijuana businesses to operate. In Oklahoma, it's, you can start your business. I mean, you have to adhere to local zoning rules and whatnot, but those are pretty loose too. But you can operate pretty much anywhere you want, and that's allowed for you know this just massive um, growth in this program. And I'd point out one more um, aspect of the program in Oklahoma that I think is a lot of people would find pretty problematic, and that is that they're just now after, um, you know, more than two years plus into the program, implementing a track and trace system to really have good insight into, you know, what product, where, what product is in the system, where it is, and being able to, you know, track down any problems in terms of if there's, if there's product that gets into the system that has, that could be dangerous to people and being, being able to get it out of the system. So they're just now putting that in place. They hired Metric, a company, but a lot of states utilize to, to do that. And the other thing, I think testing has been um, pretty scattershot. 
um, in Oklahoma too. Um, so I think there's a, there's a fair number of people who fear that there's sort of a public health, uh, you know, some kind of public health crisis potentially that could happen if they don't get better controls in place. Public health concerns and product testing have been components of the California protocol from the very beginning. Not so in Oklahoma. They're about two years into their experiment and now realize that public health issues need to be on their radar. Better late than never. I think the folks that are in charge in Oklahoma see not only track and trace, but better testing as a, as a top priority. I would say that's true of the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority, which is the regulatory agency. Um, but it's also, when I was out there, I interviewed the House uh, Majority Leader, John Eccles, who's been a big champion of the cannabis industry. And, te- in, and bolstering testing was a big priority for him. So I think, you know, both on the regulatory side and the lawmaker side, that's something that people see as, in, as important. And now to the recurring theme of the cannabis story everywhere. We deal with it here in California. It's true in Colorado, in Washington, and now Oklahoma cannabis businesses are facing it too. The lack of access to full-service banking. I don't believe that they've done anything specific in terms of state law to make it easier to access banking. I will say, and I'm not entirely sure why this is, that there do seem to be more local banks in Oklahoma than a lot of places. It might be reflective of the fact of the the oil and gas industry. I'm really not sure. And in my experience, a lot of times local banks that aren't maybe as hidebound by, you know, corporate rules and a conservative corporate culture are often more willing to look at the, the actual risk of working with cannabis companies and finding a way to make that work. So I think there is better banking access in Oklahoma than you're seeing in a lot of other places, but it's still obviously a huge problem in terms of, um, I think most significantly in terms of accessing capital and being able to get access to loans and stuff like that. We are just getting started. Much more to discuss with Politico's cannabis editor, Paul Demko, about Deep Red, Oklahoma's foray into the cannabis business. After a quick break, we'll talk with Paul about whether Oklahoma's lax business environment might lead to market oversaturization, and we'll also try to get a read on the illicit sooner market and whether it's been impacted by legalization. This is the Humble Chronicles. Welcome back to the Humboldt Chronicles. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Paul Demko. He's the cannabis editor at Politico, who recently completed a deep dive into Oklahoma's legalization of medical marijuana. Here in California, some speculate that the difficulty of gaining entry to the cannabis business, the costs and regulatory hoops, has the effect of leaving the unregulated market attractive to producers and consumers. That raises the question as to whether Oklahoma's easy-to-access, wide-open cannabis business model has had the opposite effect and has made a dent in the illegal market there. Here again is Paul Demko of Politico. I think it's hard to say. I think most people think yes. I think they think there are great incentives to shop in the, the legal market compared to a lot of places. But I don't think there's any good data on that because it's still pretty early on, for one, but also it's obviously difficult to track the, the unregulated market. 
But just consider, I mean, Oklahoma surpassed $1 billion in sales, I think, in October, you know, less than two years after the program was started. And there's 370, roughly 370,000 people enrolled in the program out of a population of about 4 million. So I think it, it seems very evident to me that that they certainly have put a dent in the uh, illicit market in a way that a lot of states have, have struggled to, to do. But the question that remains is this. Does ease of entry into the marketplace run the risk of creating an oversupply of dispensaries? And if so, is there concern in Oklahoma that there could be business closures and bankruptcies on the horizon? I think there's no doubt that there's going to be a huge shakeout coming in this market. There's just no way that it, that it can sustain this level of business activity. And, you know, I said about 10,000 licensed businesses, that doesn't mean they're all operational. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of folks undoubtedly put forward the $2,500, but then weren't able for whatever reason to actually turn that into a viable business. But I think there's no doubt that there will be a shakeout and that a lot of businesses will fail. Um, and a lot of people will have, you know, spent their, their life savings pursuing uh, their, their marijuana business dreams and, and will end up uh, hurting financially. Um, and I think you will probably at some point have people raising the idea of licensing caps. I heard it from, from folks out there. Um, like people on the one hand will be like they, you know, they're really proud of this sort of free market take all comers model that Oklahoma has, but they also think uh, maybe at some point we need to think about licensing caps. On the plus side, most who want to take a chance on the cannabis business in Oklahoma can do so. Even if they fail, they were given their chance, their fair shake. The Oklahoma market structure seems to result in less litigation. In states where licenses are harder to get, those who are denied licenses often sue. Compared to other states, Oklahoma denies few licenses and therefore makes fewer trips to the court. Another upside of Oklahoma's model compared to so many other places that I write about, there is not nearly the level of litigation that you see in states across the country that have tried to create rules for who can get a marijuana license and created limits on those licenses in ways that make them potentially very lucrative and coveted but also make the people who fail to get those licenses very likely to sue. Um, And you look at states like Nevada and Missouri and Arkansas and Michigan, and there's just been massive amounts of litigation that cost states and municipalities a lot of money. Um, And I'm not saying there hasn't been any litigation in Oklahoma, but not not nearly the level that you see uh, elsewhere. It's, of course, not a big leap at all to think that a successful, smooth experiment with legal medical cannabis in Oklahoma might lead to calls for recreational legalization. Well, the year 2020 strikes again. It turns out that just such an effort was underway in Oklahoma when the pandemic hit. It will be really interesting to see when there is a push to go to recreational. Um, so a couple things. In 2020, 
there was probably going to be a recreational legalization referendum on the ballot. Um, the, a former Democratic state lawmaker, former head of the Oklahoma chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union, Ryan Creasel, had been spearheading and helping to write an initiative that would have made it legal for anybody over the age of 21 to, to buy marijuana for any reason. And it would have also provided a means to um, expunge old marijuana-related crimes. But the coronavirus happened, and Oklahoma has pretty tough rules for its signature collection process. To get on the ballot, you have a pretty narrow window to make that happen. So that got scuttled for 2020. So then the next question becomes, will they try to do something legislatively? And Oklahoma, like a lot of states, is facing a really, really tough budget situation. Um, I think it's, it's worse than most states because of the downturn in the oil and gas industry. Um, so you have somebody like Representative Scott Fetgetter, um, who's another you know, Republican lawmaker who's become a key ally of the industry, who has said, we need to at least consider recreational marijuana, given our budget situation. I think most people think that could bring in anywhere from 200 to $300 million a year in additional revenue. But on the flip side of that, Majority Leader Eccles, uh, John Eccles, has said that he doesn't think there's any way that Oklahoma will pass recreational um, through the legislature. So the next time it could actually get on the ballot, wouldn't be until 2022. One more point about this. Um, Oklahoma is a medical marijuana program in, in name only. Um, it is not difficult to get a medical marijuana card by any stretch of the imagination. Any adult who wants one can get one. Um, most dispensaries have doctors that show up on the premises and, you know, do a basically assembly line of patient approvals. I interviewed one doctor at a dispensary in Norman, Oklahoma, who said he thought he had approved, I, I think it was 10,000 uh, patients over the years. Let me double check that. Yeah, 10,000, more than 10,000 patients. And he said he'd never found a person that didn't qualify for the program. And then and there's no qualifying conditions for medical, like a lot of states where you must have a certain diagnosis. It's basically, you just have to get a doctor to sign off on it. It's important to keep in mind just how conservative a state Oklahoma really is. For example, Paul reports that ballot measures, as opposed to bills in the Republican-controlled state legislature, may be the only way to go on the issue of expungement and on equity measures. It's not a big part of the conversation um, in a way that you see in more liberal-leaning or, or, or Democratic-controlled states. I mean, Oklahoma is as red a state as you can get. There are 28 Democrats out of 149 seats in the state legislature. Um, when I was out there, a, a lawyer who represents a lot of cannabis companies said the joke is around the Capitol is that if Democrats want to go for, go for lunch, they only have to take one car. Um, 
so that is not a, a discussion that I think a, a lot of Republicans are very interested in, in terms of trying to create incentives to make sure that people who have been disproportionately impacted by criminal enforcement are able to benefit from legalization. That might change. Um, with time, I mentioned Ryan Creasel. That's a, you know that's something that he uh, you know former Democratic lawmaker, former head of the ACLU. That's something that he um, is very interested in. That's why he thinks the um, ballot measure is the way to go for recreational sales, so that you can include expungement provisions in there. And I will say there is. I shouldn't say Republicans aren't inter- interested in that conversation. There are a lot of Republicans who are interested in criminal justice reform. So I do think that the discussion around expungements and whether it's fair to have people have kind of this marijuana scarlet letter on their records that can impact their ability to get housing or employment when, um, you know, everyone else is now, to, now free to use the drug as they choose, um, whether that's really fair. I think that really will, that probably is something that will get a lot of discussion. But I'm not sure that the kind of equity programs designed to make sure that you have a diverse array of license holders, I'm not sure if that's something that would would find much fertile ground among the Republican-controlled legislature. Just ahead, we'll be peering into the future. Will Oklahoma's plunge into the cannabis industry influence its giant neighbor to the south? And this, is it possible, possible at all, that the cannabis issue could result in a general liberalization of a conservative red state like Oklahoma? Plus, we'll ask Paul to judge the Oklahoma and California approaches to the cannabis business. The Humboldt Chronicles continues after this short break. Welcome back to the Humble Chronicles. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Paul Demko, the cannabis editor at Politico, who writes about the cannabis industry across the nation. He's recently been reporting on Oklahoma's medical marijuana business, and we wondered if the presence of the cannabis industry might have a liberalizing effect on Oklahoma politically and culturally, or would that be just too much of a stretch and just way out of reach? That is a great question, not that I am aware of. I mean, if you look at their two senators, Senator Langford and Senator Inhofe, um, I don't think they've shown any indication whatsoever that they're in any way supportive of, of marijuana. Um, Langford, even though he's probably one of the younger senators, I think has been very um, outspoken in opposing it. Um, I couldn't dissect for you the, the entire House contingent from Oklahoma, but no, I don't think so. And that'll be that, that's an interesting thing to watch. I mean, everybody points to somebody like Senator Cory Gardner from Colorado, Republican, who was defeated in November, you know, very much opposed to legalization, but then became very much a champion of the industry once he represented Colorado and saw that there was a, a financial um, value to his constituents. Um, but, you know, will that happen in, in states like South Dakota and Montana and Oklahoma and other, you know, deeply conservative states that traditionally have been represented by lawmakers that um, are very opposed to loosening federal restrictions on marijuana. We'll have to see. I mean, one one thing that sort of argues against it, I think, is often this is as much a generational issue as it is a partisan issue. And I think you guys are probably aware that the 
average age of the U.S. Senate is um, quite old. <laughs> a lot of a lot of older lawmakers um, are, are are not real comfortable with this uh, this issue and making changes to federal policy. All right, so we won't be seeing a blue Oklahoma anytime soon, but. Might the presence of an Oklahoma cannabis industry put pressure on neighboring Texas, which currently allows only limited access to medical cannabis? I would expect, yeah, if you're starting to see all these tax dollars, because if if Oklahoma goes to wreck and and people can just drive across the border from Texas and buy marijuana, yeah, I think that that could potentially change the dynamic, especially given some of the uh, financial difficulties that, that states are seeing right now. Staying with a focus on what might be next, it's generally accepted that federal legalization is somewhere out there in the not-too-distant future. Assuming that to be correct, would a hands-off state like Oklahoma or a heavily regulated state like California be better positioned competitively to transition successfully to a national marketplace? Here's Paul Demko of Politico again. Well, that I think it will really depend on what form that ultimately takes, if it is indeed inevitable. I mean, there are really different approaches to federal legalization that you've seen out there. On the one hand, you have something like the States Act, which basically says, you know, the federal government will take a hands-off approach and allow states to do whatever the hell they want um, without fear of federal punishment. That would sort of validate the status quo, right? It would allow states to continue down whatever path they choose, but take away the specter of of federal punishment um, and presumably allow a more normal level of commerce, including addressing, you know, 280E tax issues and banking issues. Or you could have some kind of much more prescriptive approach that includes you know, federal regulations that every state must adhere to. I believe Senator Ron Wyden has a bill, and he will be the, the Senate Finance Committee chair, uh, or he is now in the in the new Democratic-controlled Senate. Um, you know, so that would maybe be, be very different. I'd have to dig up, look under the hood and figure out, you know, look at those regulations more closely to know how that would affect the programs set up by various states. But it will really depend on, you know, if if Congress passes something, um, w- how much leeway they give to the states and how much they allow the, the, the current market, the current state-based market to continue. It's judgment. It's time for a verdict. Paul has compared and contrasted the cannabis industry in numerous states. He's qualified to hand down an opinion as to whether Oklahoma's model of light regulation on the cannabis business or California's method of applying heavy regulatory oversight is the most desirable. Yeah, that's a tough that's a tough question. There's definitely pros and cons. I mean, the struggle you're seeing in a lot of states, including California, is that I mean, California, more than any other, you have this entrenched illicit market or gray market, um, and you have a regulatory structure, a three-headed regulatory structure, um, and a tax structure that many businesses feel is too onerous for them to compete with that entrenched illicit market. Um, I mean, I think you see a lot of 
recognition of that, you know, whether it's the state treasurer, I believe it's treasurer Fiona Ma putting forth a, a plan to change the tax structure, or I think Governor Newsom putting forth a plan to move to a single regulatory body. So I think you see some recognition that the current system isn't working that well there. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the, the other downside to a lot of these heavily regulated states is is litigation. Um, so, you know, Oklahoma, um, there are public health concerns with the Oklahoma model that I think are probably going to need to be addressed before uh, something really bad happens. Um, and there are concerns about, you know, people, lots of businesses going bust. So there's definitely trade-offs. You know, probably the other states that is maybe the most free market in the country is probably Oregon is another one that um, has has a pretty wide open business structure for marijuana. I, you know, I'm loath to say one is better than the other, but I don't see a lot of upside in spending tens of millions of dollars fighting litigation rather than let everyone take a stab at starting a business. Of course, it's an advantage for all of us that the various states are experimenting with a variety of business models for the cannabis industry. Each state is functioning as a case study, a laboratory in this overall effort to bring a once illegal commodity to the legal market. We should learn something beneficial from each state's experiment. What we ultimately learn from Oklahoma exactly is still to be determined. And for our listeners, you can read Paul Demko's work by going to politico.com. I'm Chuck Rogers with producer Larry Trask. This edition of the Humboldt Chronicles will be posted soon at 941lounge.com, lostcoastoutpost.com, and at iTunes for listening and downloading. Thanks again to our guest, Paul Demko, the cannabis editor at Politico. Finally, much appreciation to our sponsors, Bear Extraction House and Charleston Tree Service. We'll be back with the Humboldt Chronicles at 6 p.m. on the third Wednesday of February. So we'll see you next time, February 17th at 6 p.m.